Well, thank you. It wouldn't be Chi Alpha without a slow clap, and so I'm grateful for you guys. You guys happy to be here? Awesome. I am too. As Christopher said, I am indeed Sean McEntee. I'm not lying to you. Um, and many of y'all affectionately know me as Grandpa or Mr. Sean. Uh, Mr. Sean. That's people's favorite. Um, and if I have not had the privilege to meet you, Shawnee, oh my goodness. Uh, if I have not had the privilege to meet you yet in these past three weeks, then I would love to meet you afterwards. Come find me. Um, but just a little bit about me. I am 26 years old. Some people have thought that I was the oldest person on staff, and that doesn't make any sense because I think I look pretty young. But anywho, um, I'm 26. I am from, I'm not a, a West Virginia native. I am from the greatest country on the planet, Texas, and I moved to the greatest state, West Virginia, so make of that what you will, um, but I love both places so much. Uh, I grew up with two of the most incredible parents, um, and actually, if y'all are fine with it, I would like to talk about my mom. Y'all cool with that? Cool. I was going to talk about her anyways, if you aren't, but this is a picture of my mom um, somewhere. There's my mom. Okay, also that's me with no beard, no glasses, and no hair. Um, but my mom, y'all, I think my mom is the best, best mom in the world. You might think your mom is, and you're entitled to that. I think my mom is the best mom in the world. Um, my mom, uh, she is, yeah, she's just incredible. And every time I look at my mom and I talk with her, I always, first of all, get super grateful for her. And then I always think this question. I'm like, man, I have no idea how much my mom actually loves me. Like, have y'all ever thought that before? I, I know some of you guys in this room may not have had the best mom, but maybe you had a grandma or an aunt or some motherly figure, right? And so for the sake of what I'm asking, thinking that, but have you guys ever thought that about your mom? I have no idea just how much she loves me. I think about, I'm not a parent yet, but I think about the fact that something pooped on me or puked on me is disgusting, and I'm like, my mom loved me through that. I think I like my space in my bed, and I think about how I used to crawl in bed, and my mom still loved me, right? I think about my brother, and if anyone knows my brother, there's like four of y'all, he's a punk, and we hated each other, and we bickered, and everyone could not stand us around, but my mom loved me through that. Or I think about all of us, a simple testament to this idea how much, we don't know how much our mom loves us, is that our moms loved us through and after puberty. Who, okay, raise your hand if you were awful in puberty. That's everyone, everyone should raise their hand. Y'all, our moms are incredible, right? We have no idea how much they love us. Another question, do you guys have any idea how much you are loved by people that you'll likely never meet or never know? The answer is no, obviously. But people like the pictures that we show to friends all over the states and, and all over the world, right? We have Chi Alpha is not just a movement that's here at WVU. It's a worldwide movement. We have friends that are in Alaska, that are in Texas, that are in Missouri, that are all over the U.S. that love you guys and pray for you guys. We have friends in Holland, right, and in the Netherlands, which are the same, never mind, uh, Holland, the Czech, in uh, the Middle East, people all over the world that love you guys and pray for you guys. Right? And then there's actually, in fact, I found this out a couple years ago, there's been a group of old ladies in Fairmont that for the past 30 years have been praying 
that God would move at WVU. They've been praying and caring for you guys and loving you guys. Do you have any idea just how much people you don't even know love you? Or do you have any idea how much we love you, your staff or your small group leader? Some of y'all have only been here for three weeks, so you're probably like, no, I don't. Some of y'all have been here for three years, and you still may not have any idea. Do we have any idea just how much we love y'all? But more than that, more than your mom, more than the old ladies in Fairmont, more than the missionaries stateside and overseas, more than the staff, more than your small group leader, do you have any idea just how much God loves you? Do you have any idea? I would venture to say that majority of you in this room have heard someone tell you, hey, God loves you, or you've said about yourself, God loves me, right? But do we really have any idea just how much he loves us? I don't think we do. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. God is loving. And I'm going to attempt in 20-ish minutes to, to tell you really how much God loves you. And I won't do it justice. I promise you that. But do we have any idea? So if you have your Bible with you, you can open it to the book of Romans. Um, if you don't have it, then it'll be on the screen, and it's Romans 5, chapter, or sorry, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And this is what it says. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, if you followed along on the screen, you notice that I underlined three words. Powerless, sinners, enemies. Pretty dismal sounding, right? Not, not the happiest. You're like, oh, great, this is, this is going really good. But with Jesus, there's always hope, right? This is, this is the description of man's relation to God, but it doesn't have to be final. There's always hope with Jesus. So here's what I mean. We start with verse 6. It says, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And so as we're looking at these words, powerless, sinners, enemies, we need to understand what they mean in the biblical context. So what does the Bible mean when it says powerless? It means this, that you and I are absolutely, unequivocally, indisputably unable to save ourselves. Right? We, we, we can't do it. it. It means that no amount of law-keeping, no amount of rule-following, no amount of being a good person is enough to save us. And you, you might say, well, saved from what? If you grew up in a Christian home or a Hindu home or an, uh, under Islam or any kind of religious background, you might say, oh, well, we're saved from hell or we're saved from sin or we're saved from ourselves or the wrath of God, right? But if you didn't grow up with any religious background, your life still reflects that you're trying to be saved from something, right? It's saved from a, being a bad person, saved from a bad reputation, saved from being labeled as ignorant or as, as intolerant, right? We, we, grow, we, we live our life with this idea ingrained in us that if we can just follow rules, 
and if we can just follow laws, and if we can just be a good person, somehow we can save ourselves, whatever that salvation might be. If we're just good enough, if we just do enough nice things, if we serve enough, if we aren't rude to people, right, if we give to the poor, if we do all the right things, all the good things, we think that somehow that'll get us in. But what's the testimony of the Bible and history and our own experience? It's that not one of us has ever kept all the laws or followed all the rules or been good enough. So what happens if you try to, to follow rules and laws, right? If you try to follow rules and laws, um, you have to look at what God's laws are, right? And, and to understand God's laws, you must realize that his standard for law-abiding and his standard for rule-following is absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. If you've broken one law, then you've broken all of the law in his sight. And so it's like, okay, well, has everyone not followed the rules at least once? Anyone perfect? Okay, two people raise their hand. Everyone else is perfect. I'm sorry. I'm speaking to the wrong crowd. If instead you try and go for the good person route, like I'm going to be a good person, this one's honestly even more unlivable. Charles talked about it a little bit last week, but this idea that if, it, who, really you've got to ask the question, whose standard of good are you measuring up to? Is it God's standard or is it your standard? Right? Because if what's good to me is bad to you and what's bad to me is good to you, then all of a sudden it completely breaks down and there's no actual standard. But if we submit our standard of goodness to God's standard, then is any of us really good? What we have to understand about God's laws and our conscience, right, right and wrong, is that they were never intended to save us. That was never why God gave us them. The point of them, what they were actually intended for, was to reveal the truth that we are powerless to save ourselves. You know it, I know it, all of us know it. We can't be good enough. We can't live up to even our own laws, let alone God's. And most of all, Jesus knows this. But what did he do about it? Did he come in and say, to quote one of my favorite ridiculous videos, you lost your chance and you blew it. You're never getting into heaven now. <laughs> you have to watch this. Vintage 21. Go watch that. Did he say that? Did he say you lost your chance and blew it? You're not getting in now? Or, or did he come in and did he rub it in our face and say, look, I knew you couldn't do it. No. The Bible says that while we were powerless, while we were unable to save ourselves, while we could do nothing for ourselves, he died for the ungodly. He looked upon us, and he saw that there was no shred of hope for us to save ourselves, given our own devices. He saw it all. He saw how weak and powerless we really are. And it, it is hard to, to accept sometimes, but we also, I mean, anytime you're anxious, anytime you feel like you're not living up to what you think you're supposed to be, this is attesting to this, that we're powerless. We can't even be who we want to be. And God saw that. He saw the turmoil, the anxiety, the depression, the pain of everything. And he said, I'll save them. My power is sufficient in your powerlessness. And was God obligated to do this? No. Does he get anything out of it? Do we have anything to offer that he doesn't already have? No. We're powerless, weak, 
and incapable of saving ourselves. But could it be that in spite of our lack, he made a way simply because he loves you? Do you have any idea just how loved you are by God? As we move along in the passage, we come to verse 8, and it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, that word sinners, that is a dirty word, right? Who likes being called a sinner? No one. It's just something in us, doesn't matter if you're religious or not, you're like, well, screw you, you know? Like, I don't, don't call me that. But what does it mean to be a sinner, right? How many of us, I already raised my hand, have actively and intentionally disobeyed someone in authority. You're a college student, so you all got to raise your hand, right? <laughs> right? Don't you dare climb on that. Oh, I'm climbing on it, right? Don't you dare go hang out with that, that boy. Sneak out the window, right? <laughs> Don't you dare go crowd surfing, Micah. <laughs> go crowd surfing, right? <laughs> Take a shower. It's been five days. I'm going two weeks. <laughs> Right, what we say is, screw mom and dad, screw the authorities, I'm doing what I want. That's sin. It's not just the act, it's the motive. I'm doing what I want. Sin is an active, willful choice to disobey. And when it comes to sinning against God, what we have to understand is you're not just breaking a law, you're actually breaking a heart. So we can do something a, a little fun. I need y'all's participation for this. So, by show of hands, how many of us in the room have ever lied before? Even little white lies, your weight, your age, the grade you got. Okay, cool. All right, again, by show of hands, how many of y'all have ever used God's name in vain, saying GD or OMG or Jesus Christ whenever you stub your toe or you're mad at a video game and you throw your, like, right, Okay. Again, raise your hand if you've ever stolen something before. Even like a pack of gum or money from your mom's purse. Something small, maybe a child. Brandon almost. <laughs> Funny story, Brandon lost a bet and was supposed to steal a child. Thank God he didn't. <laughs> All right, one more time. One more show of hands. I see less and less people wanting to raise their hands. How many of us in this room have ever thought lustfully about someone, said, mm, I want to see them without their clothes on? Or, wow. <laughs> no, really, you guys have all thought it. You know you have. Listen. <laughs> we all know we have. Some of us just don't want to raise our hands. All right, so... Something about that last one, in the New Testament, Jesus says if you look lustfully at someone that you've committed adultery in your heart. So put it all together by our own admission, some of us with our hands, some of us internally not wanting to raise our hands. By our own admission, each of us has said, I am a lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemer. Or I was at least. Eesh. <laughs> I didn't trick y'all. Because you know it's you know inside you. I mean, you raised your hand, and I did too. Now that's just four of God's laws. That's four of the Ten Commandments, right? But by our admission, by us raising our hands, we've attested to the truth that even if we don't do these things now, 
If left only to those actions, we would be guilty, right? In the sight of God, one law is all the law. And you don't get out of a guilty verdict just because you don't do it anymore, right? A criminal doesn't get their record clean just because they stop doing criminal activities. It's always there. And yet, I love that word yet, and yet, though we are undeniably guilty, God has made a way for the sinner to become a saint. While we were sinners, while we were breaking God's laws and breaking his heart, while we were doing things that we wanted to do, and while we were in the very midst of sin, Christ demonstrated the love of God and that he became a man, and he died on a cross, and he rose again so that the sinner could become a saint, so that the impure could be made clean, so that the broken could be made whole. But why? Why, why do this, right? Like, why die for someone who was willfully disobeying you and actively breaking your heart? Who does that? What does God owe us? Nothing. He doesn't owe us a thing. We're rightfully guilty. He doesn't owe us his favor or his approval, and he most definitely doesn't owe us his love. And yet, he still loves us. He is radically and madly in love with us, so much so that he did become a man, and he did die on a cross, and he did rise again to express that love. I ask again, do you have any idea just how loved you are by God? Finally, we move to verse 10 in our passage, which says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, to be powerless to, to do anything about our sin, that sucks, right? To be a sinner, to be willfully disobedient, that's another matter. But to be an active enemy of God is a totally different thing. To be someone's enemy is to attack them, to undermine them, and to be totally against everything the other side stands for. And this is exactly what the Bible says we are, or at least have been. We are not just powerless and not just selfish. We are opposed to all the things of God. Like, listen, everyone in this room has a God. You can say you're an atheist, you have a God. Your God could be money, and if it's, a God, if it's money, then you're an enemy of God. If your God is power or prestige or making a name, you're an enemy of God. If, you're, if your God is you, then you're an enemy of God. Anything that isn't the God of the Bible, the Bible says is an enemy of God. And yet, what does this verse say? Even while we were God's enemies, he loved us and made a way. The king of glory, loving the very people, trying to overthrow him. I mean, can you imagine? Can, can you actually imagine? I mean, just think, would Harry Potter go and die for Voldemort's highest good? Like, Luke Skywalker doesn't go and lay down his life for Emperor Palpatine to, to live a great life, right? Thanos, he, the, the Avengers don't go and lay down their life for Thanos. No one does that. What, what hero lays down their life for the villain? And yet that is exactly what God does and what he did. Even while we are, or still, even are, sorry, even while we are, or have been enemies of God, fighting against him, totally against his cause, Jesus Christ died in order that we might be able to be friends with God instead of enemies. He took the initiative. We were fighting, and he said, I want to make friends of them. I ask one more time, do you have any idea 
just how loved you are by God. He loves us when we're powerless and weak. He loves us when we're sinners and rebellious. He loves us when we're enemies and villains. But why? That is the question that has bothered me since I walked with God. Why? What do I have to offer God that he doesn't already have? Nothing. What does he get out of loving me? Nothing. What does God owe me that he would die for me? Nothing. Why? And I believe, as I've been asking the Lord this for years, he revealed this in Micah 7, 8. It says, is there another God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his people? You do not stay angry forever because you delight in showing mercy. You delight in showing mercy. Why does he love us? It's this simple, because he wants to. Why does he forgive our sins? Because he wants to. It brings him joy to love you. He doesn't do it because he has to. He does it because he wants to. Is that crazy that God, the God of the universe, would condescend and become a man? And die for those that are too weak and too wretched and too wicked that no one else would ever die for, him, for them? Is it radical that God would give his perfect self for someone so imperfect? Is it scandalous that the only innocent man in all of history died for guilty men and women? Is that radical? Good. Is that scandalous? Good. Does that go against your sense of how God should be treated if there is a God, or if you believe in God, good. Because this love, the love of God, and the person of Jesus is the most radical and the most scandalous and the most audacious love you can ever know. There is nothing like it. And if you will let the God of the universe love you, it will transform your life, and it will transform other, other people's lives, and it will change eternity forever. The band can go ahead and come up. And as the band's coming up, how, how do we respond to the love of God? What are we going to do tonight? How are we going to respond to this overwhelming, undeserved love of God? You and I, I promise you, not a single one of us in this room deserves to be loved by God. How are we going to respond? This is how I believe we're going to respond tonight. We're going to receive the love of God we're going to accept that he loves us in spite of all of our hang-ups. And then we're going to live our life differently. You see, there can be no passive response to the love of God. There is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection is something you cannot be neutral about. You can be for it. You can be against it. You can accept it. You can reject it. But you cannot stand in the middle. We can continue on in our endless struggle to be a good person, trying to save ourselves, knowing that we really are powerless to change anything. We can continue on in our good works, obeying the law to maintain our salvation or to achieve our salvation, knowing in our heart of hearts that it's doomed to fail. 
We can continue on in our sin and rebellion, Christian or not, all the while dealing with the misery that is so prevalent in our hearts and the misery that we try so desperately to hide from everyone else. We can continue in our enmity with God, fully knowing that we have absolutely no chance. We can be pissed and angry at God and fight Him and do it just so we can shake our fist and say, I I stuck it to Him. We can continue of all of these things and be miserable and a total wreck. And I know that because I was there. Or tonight, we can let the love of God wash over our lives, receive it, Receive it that it, it defies reason. It defies what we think love should look like. We can be welcomed into the family of God. We can live for the most worthy cause and the most worthy king. And that can happen right now. It doesn't have to happen later. It doesn't have to, you don't have to keep putting off. Maybe I have to get things fixed for God to love me. No, right now. You see, the beautiful truth of our passage tonight is this. God loves you where you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you there. He loves you right where you are, but he will not leave you there. That is never, he doesn't say, all right, you're good, just stay there. No, he loves you way too much to leave you there. And the majesty of grace and the beauty of the gospel and the overwhelming reality of God's love is that you can do nothing to save yourself, but You can't do anything bad enough to disqualify yourself. It's a free gift from a loving, righteous, personal God. He loves you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. If tonight you aren't a follower of Jesus, I do want to clarify that no one is saved just because God loves them. God loves everyone on the earth. You're not saved because he loves you, but because he loves you, He made a way for salvation. And that way is what Jesus says, repent and believe. Believe that God is who he says he is. Receive that love demonstrated in the self-giving death of Christ and live a changed life. The mark of a person who has been received the love of God is that they are always changed and they're never the same. So what does a practical response look like tonight? What I want us to do during our time of worship is, is speaking out audible words. There's something powerful about actually speaking. It's one thing to say it in your head. It's another thing to say it out loud. And I want you to stand in faith. Say, God, I, I don't know if I believe this, but I'm gonna say it. And I want you to help me to believe it and say, God loves me. God loves me. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. God, you love me because you want to love me. And you don't want me to be the person I've been. You want me to be so much greater. And then, if you're willing, I want you to turn to your friend or your roommate or your small group leader or your small group member or resource leader, resource group, someone. And I want you to speak the love of God over and say, God loves you. There's something powerful about hearing that too. God loves you. You can't earn it, but he loves you. You see, Jesus said, freely have you received, freely give. We are not meant, this love of God is not meant just for us. It's not meant to stop with us. We have a responsibility founded in that love of God to tell everyone about the self-giving, sacrificial, life-changing love 
of a God who wanted you and me and everyone else? Is there anyone in the universe who could love one so weak and so wretched and so wicked as me? Yes, his name is Jesus. Will we believe that tonight, though? Will we let, the, will we let God's love change us so that we become powerful instead of weak, pure instead of wretched, holy instead of wicked? Will we let it change our friendships and change this campus and change this world so that all may know the love of God? Let us believe that God really does love us right where we're at, right in this room, right now, but also that he loves us way too much to leave us there. And then let us go hard after who he wants us to be. Jesus, I pray for the people in this room who, who feel powerless, who feel like they are always trying to live up to some standard. They don't know whose standard or what standard. And it's this continual anxiety and pain and struggle and frustration that I'm not who I want to be. I pray, God, that the powerless in the room tonight, God, would know that you love them and that your power is sufficient. That as you rest on their, as they rest on your love, God, that where they're weak, where they're fallen, where they're messed up, would be filled in. God, I pray for those in the room that are that are actively disobeying, that, that are just deciding, I want, to do, I want to do things my way. I pray, Jesus, that you would speak to them, God, that you would say, hey, even though you deserve this, I'm not going to give it to you. I pray that they would receive the love. God, I pray for anyone in this room who is angry at you, who's mad at you. They don't even know why they're here, God, but they're mad, and they're an enemy, and they're against you. God, I pray, Jesus, that you would you would show them, you would reveal your love to them. God, I, I realize that my words are, are minimal, they're small, God, and it will take only an act of your spirit to reveal to each of us just how much you love us. And so that's what I pray for tonight, God. You would reveal to us your deep, magnificent love and that we would be changed tonight. We love you, Jesus, in your name.